Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies. I'm Louise Muscetta, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Randy Brown, who is Assistant Professor at Xavier University, about his new book, Surviving Slavery in the British Caribbean, published in 2017 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Randy Brown, welcome. Thanks for having me, Louise. I'm pleased to be here. Randy, uh, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I grew up in Florida, in the southern part of the United States, and went to undergraduate at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I did my PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, Since 2012, I've taught at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. Right. And and, and how did you come to... To, to research the topic of surviving slavery in the British Caribbean and, and eventually write the book? I, I think as long as I can remember, um, at least certainly back to high school, I had been interested in the history of slavery. I thought, um, even when I began graduate school, that I would end up studying slavery in the American South, um, but found myself drawn to the Caribbean and especially to Berbice, what's mm-hmm. part of now Guyana, really because the sources there are um, so much stronger and richer uh, than they are for the American South. So I had an interest in slavery for a very long time. I didn't know that that interest would lead me to uh, Guyana or to Berbice um, until really early on in graduate school. And so so Berbice is really a a fascinating territory from a British colony. Can, can you contextualize it, um, not least in, in its geography, uh, but also how and why it's such an important colony to study in relation to histories of slavery in the British Caribbean and Atlantic slavery more generally? It's not on most people's radar. Uh, and I mean that not just for general readers, but even a lot of specialists in the Caribbean and the history of slavery haven't heard of Berbice or maybe not know exactly where it is. Um, for listeners who don't know, it's the easternmost part of what's now Guyana. So the northern coast of South America, um, right on the border with Guyana and Suriname. It was for a very long time a Dutch colony. The Dutch were the first European powers to colonize Berbice along with neighboring colonies of Demerara and Desequibo um, in an area that was really kind of ignored by Spanish and Portuguese with Spanish claims further west and Spanish America and Portuguese claims, of course, in Brazil to the east. So the Dutch got a foothold there very early in the 17th century and were slow to develop a very small slave society there. It only entered the British orbit at the end of the 18th century during the Napoleonic Wars. It actually bounces uh, back and forth six, seven, eight times really in a decade or two. 
and eventually becomes a British colony. And one of the things the British do as soon as they establish formal control of Guyana is begin a massive development campaign to expand the level of plantation agriculture and to bring in tens of thousands of new African captives, both directly from Africa and from older British colonies. So by the time you get to the early 19th century, late period of slavery in the British Caribbean, colonies like Jamaica and Barbados are either stagnating or certainly not growing anymore. The fields and the soils in those fields are exhausted. Um, there's simply not a lot of areas for new development. Guyana, on the other hand, has massive tracts of land um, that can be reclaimed from the rivers and from the seacoast. And it becomes this kind of new frontier uh, or the last frontier of slavery expanding in the Southern Caribbean, along with other places like Trinidad or Granada, for example. So it's a very dynamic place where in the span of just a couple decades, you can see this rapid expansion of the plantation complex and then a series of economic challenges for planters um, and then experiments in what the British call amelioration or an effort to better regulate and somehow soften or make slavery more humane and then emancipation. So Berbice is a kind of a microcosm of bigger changes in the Atlantic world in um, a very narrow, condensed time frame. And, and so you open your book um really uh, I, I mean the 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 time span of your of your research is it begins with the permanent um the the, the permanent occupation so to speak of rubies by uh, british authorities so but but what were the legacies of dutch colonialism in rubies uh, even after it, it changed into british hats the Dutch mattered quite a lot. And I don't work on the Dutch period. Uh, one, I, I don't read Dutch. And the source is really at the heart of my book, the records of a Dutch, uh, then British official known as the Fiscal. Um, they don't, we don't have those records for the Dutch period, for example. So even if we wanted to do this kind of work in the 18th century, we just don't have the records that would make that possible. The most important legacy of the Dutch is a legal system um, under Dutch rule, enslaved people had the legal right to lodge complaints against their owners, so plantation owners or slave owners, against managers, overseers, sometimes against other enslaved people themselves. Um, they could go to this official known as the fiscal, which didn't exist in other British colonies, except for those like Burbies who maintained that institution, um, and sometimes successfully prosecute violations of the law of slavery. Uh, now, when the British conquered the colony, part of the terms of surrender were that they would maintain that institution. So what we get is a British colony that's, um, on the one hand, fully enmeshed in British amelioration and imperial debates about the abolition of the slave trade and then of slavery, but with a really important Dutch legal legacy. Uh, that distinguishes it from a place like Jamaica or Barbados, areas where uh, slave owners simply were not under the same pressure to um, uh, comply with certain laws on slavery. And so that, that's the most important one that gives us this body of records and that really changes the political situation for the way enslaved people can negotiate their day-to-day -day working lives uh, with their owners, uh, enslavers, and with one another. So actually, let's talk a little about these uh these complaints so so how in how easy was it for, in, for an enslaved person 
in Burbese in the early 19th century uh, to lay a complaint? I think it was very difficult. Now, the technically, the law says that any enslaved person at any time can go and make a complaint for any reason and has to ask her or his owner or manager for a pass. There are pass laws in Burbese, like most slave societies, that prevent enslaved people from traveling off their estate. Um, now, in theory, they're supposed to be able to say, hey, Mr. Manager, I'd like to go complain about the recent flogging. Um, can you give me a pass to go complain to a powerful legal official against you? Now, of course, in theory, that worked. But in practice, what we see is many examples of enslaved people who um, have to weigh the advantages and disadvantages of complaining about any particular action. So um, the first obstacle, of course, is you know deciding whether or not a particular, say, act of violence is one that they can or should complain about, not to mean they accepted it, but people in Burbese, uh, not unlike people in any time or place, don't complain every time they feel wrong. They complain when they think they might have an opportunity to actually succeed. So they, they weigh that calculus, then they've got to actually physically get off their plantation and make it to the colonial capital of Burbese, town of New Amsterdam, which is near the Atlantic coast. For enslaved people who lived in town, the geography made it uh, more accessible. For those who lived on plantations that could be 10, 12, sometimes 20 or 30 miles, um, that was a, a day's or multi-day journey uh, that, of course, requires them to cross multiple other plantations to be seen, to risk being apprehended. Uh, and there are many, many instances of enslaved people who are physically prevented from going to complain where the manager, the overseer, notices what they're going to do and then apprehends them, sometimes flogging or beating them or locking them in the stocks, for example. Um, so it, it's hard to go to the fiscal. And then once you make it to the fiscal or to a protector of slaves, which is another official that the British Institute during amelioration, who sort of augments the fiscal's power, a whole other series of challenges begin, right? Trying to convince that official, one, that you're telling the truth. These are people who are not inclined generally to believe in slave people. Um, the fiscal on record himself, the fiscal during most of this period, is a man named Michael Bennett, who says that nine out of 10 slaves are, are liars, that we shouldn't believe them. Um, so they've got to convince them they're telling the truth. Then they've got to convince them the law was actually broken, which is a different thing than an enslaved person feeling aggrieved. Um, so there's a series of, it's a long answer, but it's a, it's a long question, that it's very hard for enslaved people to make a complaint and even harder to make a successful complaint. So, so what are the limits of the sources that you're using, what do, what do the complaints, what don't they show? Well, I, I think they're going to show us, I mean, James Scott would call this a public transcript in a lot of ways. This is um, an archive in which enslaved people are carefully crafting their narratives in ways they think are going to be successful. So I don't read these at any point thinking that these tell us transparently exactly what enslaved people thought or felt. Um, Enslaved people are only going to complain about things they think the law is going to help them with and the legal officials enforcement of that law. Um, so we have people who reveal less than they knew or thought, people who frame their complaints in a particular way. The sort of cultural script many enslaved people use is this effort to um, 
portray themselves as loyal, hardworking enslaved people who had held up their end of this sort of unspoken contract. I will do a certain amount of labor for you, whatever is acceptable under the moral economy of slavery. Um, but my manager, my owner has not upheld his end of the bargain. So for example, I've worked very hard and rather than um, running away, I have been loyal, but I haven't been given enough food or I have been flogged and I was punished for no reason. So they're framing them in ways they think officials are going to be sympathetic to. They're not going and saying, I deserve to be free. Uh, I can't believe I'm enslaved, things of that nature. So, uh, I, you know, that's a, a way of remembering to read these with the grain that they are like any legal transcript, they're telling us only um, a particular version of a narrative. But, but they're also revealing a, a kind of sort of rhetorical strategies to to use the system for their advantage, right? But for their, I mean, it, it's something that you talk about in uh, your introduction and in your, in your title it, it is survival. It's this idea that survival is key um, as opposed to freedom. Yeah, and, and that's the central premise of the, the book. Um, it's a book about really one of the most fundamental, maybe even basic, obvious facts of Atlantic slavery, and that's the unrelenting struggle, in this case in the British Caribbean, to survive. So I, I took as the starting point for the project what historians of the Caribbean have, have known for a very long time, that almost all slave societies were death traps, places where enslaved people struggled to reproduce themselves, where these were societies marked by very high death rates, very low birth rates, societies that could only be sustained through continued importation of new African captives. Um, historians, though, had generally recognized that as a kind of demographic fact rather than interrogated that. And what I, I wanted to do with this project was ask what would happen if we took that problem of survival seriously. And so, so it's an effort to kind of reframe the starting point for understanding the politics and power relationships of Atlantic slavery, which we've tended to see in terms of a, either a top-down or a bottom-up struggle between enslaved people and their enslavers. So slave versus master is a kind of binary struggle in which the assumption is that enslaved people were freedom-oriented, that that was their major problem was being enslaved and that their major goal was to be free. I would not argue that enslaved people didn't want to be free. Of course, that's not the argument here. But what I'm trying to show is that for most enslaved people, the primary concern was simply to stay alive, not to resist or escape slavery, but how to survive it. And that when I, when I did that, when I started with survival, it really changed um, for me in a very powerful way how I understood enslaved people's social relationships their cultural practices, and their political strategies. This actually brings me to my next question, which is about slave drivers. You have this in, entire chapter dedicated to slave drivers and really um, unpicking the, 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 the complaints and mining the complaints to try and understand the power relationships between slave drivers and enslaved peoples or um, managers. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I got interested in drivers uh, early on in the research of, of this project, reading through complaints and realizing that drivers popped up almost everywhere and in many different ways. As um, they, First of all, I should just explain them for people who don't know. Um, 
drivers are enslaved men, and that, that's important. They're almost always men, for reasons maybe we can talk about, who are crucial go-betweens for other enslaved laborers on the one hand, so primarily field laborers, and then they are enslavers above them, white or European overseers, managers, planters, or plantation owners. And their primary job is to supervise other enslaved people at work, to punish enslaved people who have committed some sort of infraction, um, and to enforce plantation discipline. So they're not unlike a foreman in a factory setting um, on the plantation. And if we say follow Sidney Mintz and think of the plantation as a kind of prototypical factory in the fields, the drivers really are the foreman who made that system work. Um, for a long time, historians have, have acknowledged that drivers were very important, but they've been kind of caricatured or put into two camps. And the debate, to my mind, seemed just a little stale to the extent that there was a debate about drivers and there's very little historiography about them. Historians tend to want to say, well, were drivers generally rebels? Were they kind of with enslaved people? Were they leaders of the community? And on the other side, historians say, no, drivers generally were simply, they capitulated, they accommodated, they facilitated slavery. And I thought that was a kind of narrow um, dichotomy or a kind of a false choice. And so what I wanted to see here was how did drivers try to walk that tightrope um, as a matter of speaking here? So how, how did they try to balance these competing demands? On the one hand, people above them who expected them to enforce plantation, plantation discipline, um, keep the plantation going. And on the other hand, enslaved people who uh, drivers had to live with them at the end of the day. Um, and so what I wanted to see was how drivers tried to balance those things and the reason it matters for, for drivers, so obviously the driver is very important for the plantation itself. Um, the role of the driver is very important for a driver because it is a survival strategy for these men. Drivers live um, a decade or more on average longer than other enslaved men. And while they are living, they have a better quality of life. They have better food, they have better clothing, they have better housing, they also enjoy a number of what we might think of as social perks, they're more likely to marry and have larger families. So within the confines of slavery, drivers found a way to make, um, if not a tolerable life, certainly a materially better life to the extent that we can gauge that from the records than ordinary enslaved people. But, that, but doing so was a very hard job because they've got to do really an impossible job of satisfying both their enslavers and their fellow slaves. So what were the consequences of, of being demoted, for example? It could be um, really horrific. Many drivers protested bitterly being demoted. Um, what that meant for some drivers was simply unacceptable. One of the, um, to me, most striking examples of this is a driver named Philip. He's an African man on a plantation called Canefield, a sugar plantation, as you might guess from the name. Um, and he's demoted and he's ordered to go back to the field. And he, this weighs so heavily on him that instead of doing that, he runs to the, the river, the Burbese River, um, where many of the plantations are. And the overseer and the manager think that he's trying to run away, that he's trying to escape. And, and some drivers would do this when they're demoted. Others run to the fiscal and complain to try to get the fiscal to intervene in this case. Um, but Philip's actually not doing that. What he's doing is committing suicide. And they're unable to get to him before he drowns himself in the river. In the investigation afterwards, Philip's wife explains in her words that his heart was turned after being ordered to go back to the field. So he's ordered to go back to being an ordinary slave, 
um, as she goes on to describe it, which means a loss of status. It means a loss of all the material rewards that went along with being a driver. Um, and as any man like Philip could know, he could just look around and see that drivers tended to live much longer than other slaves. It means a shorter life expectancy. And for someone like Philip, that was just uh, unacceptable for him, that he chose death to, to rather than um, lose that position. And, and so, so and, I mean, you, you, you made reference to gender, to, to, to slave drivers being predominantly men. What, um, what, 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 to, to, the, to these complaints, the, these records of the fiscal and the protector of slaves, what, what, what do they say about the gender dynamics on a plantation? Uh, not least, I mean, between uh, men and women, but among men or among women. Yeah, so in um, what's chapter four, it looks at marriage between enslaved men and women, and especially marital conflicts. Among other things, we see that men in Berbice who vastly outnumbered women, like most societies that were um, importing or had recently imported large numbers of captives from Africa, in which men predominated in the slave trade, Berbice is marked not just by an African majority, but by very heavy male majority. Um, this means that for men who wanted wives or wanted some sort of uh, romantic or sexual relationship with women, they face a demographic problem and that there's simply not enough women to go around. And so we see a very, very high level of male rivalry over women, often violent rivalries between men who want to establish what they think are exclusive claims to women and women who sometimes have very different ideas about what their relationships look like. So um, one reaction that takes among enslaved men is, is violence against other enslaved men. Another reaction that Take, or another um, form that that takes, however, is men who are using violence and intimidation to try to control women that they think are their wives. And often the women in these complaints say, no, we've been separated for a very long time, or I told him I wanted no thing to do with him. Um, and men are using various forms of violence to try to control women. Um, and what I found really interesting in, in this chapter is both men and women are going to the protector of slaves or going to the fiscal or, um, sometimes going to their managers or overseers first to try to find some sort of help to negotiate these domestic conflicts. But in general, men succeeded much more often. And my argument is that that's because um, men in Berbice across lines of color and status, so African men or Afro-Caribbean men, as well as European men, shared certain assumptions about gender. Um, and they shared a patriarchal notion that men should have more power and rights than women, that women should be subordinate to men, that adultery among women was unacceptable, but was tolerated among men, for example. And so what you see is, is men sometimes going to their enslavers or to legal officials to ask for help controlling the sexual mobility or autonomy of women that they claimed as their wives and succeeding much more than, say, women who go and complain about physically abusive husbands. Um, there are cases where women, for example, there's one woman who complains about her violent husband. The fiscal uh, interviews the husband. He promises that he won't do this anymore. The fiscal dismisses the complaint and I believe in his words says, you know, she, she, um, he reminded her to be more attentive of her duties as a wife. So there's this kind of patriarchal legal culture um, that brings men together around the shared goal of female subordination. So th there's an instance um, here where gender ends up dividing enslaved men and women, and then 
ironically uniting um, free and enslaved men. And, and going back to your theme of survival, how do how how does marriage then fit into, or how does survival fit into uh, these marriages, into this domestic life? Yeah, I think a couple of ways. Um, there, there's been a tendency, and this is probably much less true over the past decade or so, but um, over the past several decades, there's been a tendency among historians of slavery to see the family as an insulating force, as something that could protect enslaved people from some of the emotional and physical trauma of slavery. Um, I, I think a, a newer generation, certainly of feminist historians of slavery, are reminding us that many of the power dynamics that existed outside of the house also existed within the slave household, um, and that marriage and family life not only facilitated enslaved people's survival, but could be the very terrain on which they're fighting to survive. So merit, enslaved marriages, not unlike free marriages in the 19th century, could be dangerous. They could be places where people ran into very violent conflicts with one another. Um, so, so that's the first kind of way I see survival playing here. The other one is um, quite different, and it's that the efforts enslaved people made to form families, to find partners, to find companionship, to find love, to share resources, remind us that, um, and I, I think this is important, enslaved people were not only concerned with physical survival. They cared about other things. They cared about things that made life meaningful and tolerable. So these are not, um, and that's, you know, one cynical way of reading this work or these records would be, oh, people are just kind of um, instinctually trying to survive in a kind of um, knee-jerk reaction, doing anything they can to maximize the chances of survival. And, th and that's certainly not true. People are making decisions here um, based on quality of life, based on what gives them some sort of dignity, what might give them even some sort of pleasure um, that doesn't always necessarily lead to, say, a longer or materially better life. But were there sort of economic or material um, advantages to uh, to these unions? In, in particular, I'm thinking particularly in relation to women. What did women get out of this? <laughs> Very little in many cases. Um, I think marrying drivers was one of the few cases that could be really materially beneficial to women. Um, women who married drivers were able to share in some of the same material rewards that drivers got. So for example, there's a woman who's married to a driver who um, is able to use some of the wages the driver may have been paid to hire a carpenter to do some work uh, for her or for them on the, uh, on the Sunday that um, the carpenter would have been off from his normal job. Um, women in general, I think, given the demographic disparity that there's many men competing for a relatively smaller number of women, um, could try to leverage their demographic scarcity into finding um, uh, maybe, quote unquote, the, the best possible men that they could, and then to dissolve those unions and then try to go find better men when they found them, um, say they were unhappy in their marriage here. And that, that would have been harder for uh, men to do. In extreme cases, women actually practiced polyandry. So women who had multiple husbands. And the, the evidence for this is limited. Um, here's an example of a type of complaint people or women were not likely to bring, uh, given that uh, Europeans frowned on any sort of polygamy. Um, 
So we have cases of polyandry where women are having multiple husbands and both enslaved men and plantation managers find this really objectionable for moral reasons. Um, and also enslaved men um, just think it's untenable that they're struggling to find, say, one wife and then certain women are monopolizing uh, many men. Um, so that's a kind of extreme example of how women tried to turn the demographic advantage that they had um, in their favor by, say, having multiple men who might be able to provide different things or have husbands, say, one on a plantation and one on another estate or one in town. So, so we've been talking a lot about sort of survival and power relations in different parts of the plantations, if you will. So um, with the slave driver uh, in, in domestic life. But um, what, what was, what's the spiritual dimension? Um how does survival, does power um, play out spiritually uh, on the plantations? The enslaved people in Burbese, whether they were born in Africa or born in the Caribbean, shared certain assumptions about sickness, health, and spiritual power. Um, and this comes together really around the catch-all term in Berbice and in the wider British Caribbean uh, known as obia. Um, and there's a lot of debate about exactly what obia means, um, how we define it, and uh, along with some other historians like Diana Payton, for example, I'm kind of less interested in, in how we might precisely define it and more interested in looking at how enslaved people used it, what they thought about it. Um, and, and so in uh, chapter five, which is on um, the spiritual practice known as obia, it's about a one particular healing ritual known as the Minji Mama dance. Minji is the uh, Burbese Dutch, so the Creole language word for water. So this is the water mama dance. And this is a dance that's performed in moments of crisis. Now, the, the way that enslaved people understood misfortune uh, sickness, uh, for example, certainly on an epidemic level, is that there must have been some sort of malevolent spiritual force or poison that was operating. Um, and this is understandable. The European or Anglo-American healthcare enslaved people received actually did very little to help them. In many cases, it simply made them worse. So enslaved people tended to rely on their own healers, including practitioners of obia. Um, whether they self-identified as obia practitioners or not, this was kind of the catch-all term for them. So um, in these two cases I tell in that chapter, which is a kind of micro-historical look at two different Minji Mama dances or, or two versions of the same dance on different plantations, one orchestrated by a Central African man named Hans, the other by a uh, Creole or Berbice-born man named Willem, Enslaved people on both of these estates become really concerned that large number of people are getting sick and then dying. Now, given what we know about the death rates in Burbese, things must have been particularly bad for them um, in these two cases where the drivers, back to the drivers, decided to call in an uh, outsider, to call in an expert to first try to diagnose the problem and then try to form some sort of solution or healing. Um, and in both cases, actually, things go go wrong, which is probably why we know about them. And I, I, can, I can say more about exactly how these cases play out and, um, and the reaction of different people, if you like. Uh, but what's quite interesting about these cases is that it's, it's the drivers that are calling, that are taking the initiative to um, invite 
these Ubia practitioners in onto the, the the plantations that they that they work in. But what what does that say about the relationship between uh, between these Ubia practitioners and drivers and authority? Well, a couple of things. So the the drivers. Um were probably motivated by a couple of different things when they decided to call an OBA practitioner in. Um, I don't want to discount compassion. It, it may have been very hard for them to watch people, some of whom they may have had close relationships or friendships with, get sick and die, um, or worry that their friends may get sick and die. But I think they're also very clearly motivated by the desire that drivers in, in all cases have to maintain their own privileged position of power and authority. What's ironic here is that the way the drivers decide to do that, faced with really no other viable option, is to go to these practitioners of Obia who are known to be powerful um, and potentially helpful, but also um, very dangerous and can open up a host of new problems for the drivers. They can act as you know, if things go right, the OBA practitioner can come in, can consult with the drivers, can identify the source of the problem, um, in this case, perform a Minji Mama dance, heal the plantation, and then everybody's happy. The plantation's spiritual and physical health is restored. The driver's political power is only enhanced. The OBA practitioner has been um, compensated. Most of them worked uh, for pay. This was a paid role. Um, but that's not what happens in these cases. And the fact that the OBRA practitioners, uh, in one case, Hans is interrupted, and the other case, case of Willem, ends up failing in a um, very horrific and dramatic way, uh, killing the enslaved woman that he meant to heal at one point, opens the drivers up to a host of all kinds of other problems, um, and it backfires. Uh, and the drivers in both cases um, are demoted from their position. Uh, the driver who uh, participated in one case is a man named January, um, complains 10 years later about his manager. And he still, he begins that complaint to the fiscal by reminding the fiscal that he had been demoted because he had bl been blamed for inviting the driver, Hans, in to perform the Minji Mama dance. Um, so Obey practitioners and drivers are two different types of political authorities. Um, the driver's power comes from official appointment as well as from a certain level of uh, community esteem in the eyes of enslaved people, whereas the Obia practitioner's power is based on an ability to spiritually heal or harm to manipulate spiritual forces. So that's a power that's more difficult for plantation managers and owners to control. They're not the ones who provide that Obia practitioner with that authority so it makes it much more difficult to control than say demoting a driver and i mean could you talk a little bit more about these these uh minji mama ceremonies because they they can have a very violent uh in, in the two cases that you highlight in, in your chapter they have a violent consequence so um how do you contextualize the that violence sure um and just before saying much about the violence of the Minji Mama, I just want to be really clear that the Minji Mama dance is not Obia as a, a whole. Um, Obia has been so mischaracterized, uh, really starting with British observers in the 18th century, 
and caricatured as a, a dangerous, violent, heathen practice. Um, it remains illegal in some places in the British Caribbean now. So it's it's a very misunderstood and maligned practice. So when talking about it, I just want to be very careful that um, we shouldn't exaggerate the level of violence or danger, and we shouldn't pretend that the Minji Mamba dance, for example, or the form it takes in these cases is typical of everyday obia. Um, instead, what we see here is a uh, diagnostic um, ritual performed in moments of crisis. So I, I liken this when um, we think about the dangers involved and the risks and the violence of it to, um, say, particularly invasive surgical practice now which makes it a little easier for us to understand. You, you might think if I describe you have a problem and say, well, we're going to cut into you and you're going to bleed a lot and it's going to pain and there's going to be several risks. You might think, well, why would I ever do that, right? That sounds dangerous. That sounds violent. It's going to cause me a lot of pain. Um, well, if the power to cure you is there, it might make a little bit more sense. So the, the form that this takes in the Minji Mama dance, um, which is first designed to identify the root cause of some sort of problem. So to take the case of Willem, who performs it on the plantation um, with the unwieldy Dutch name of Ophoop von Vetter. Um, he's called in by the drivers who tell him everybody's getting sick and the children are dying. They don't know why. Willem first tries to cure people individually. And the violence here is very, very minimal. He sprinkles some water over people's heads, does a sort of um, blessing or curing ceremony, strikes them over the head with some branches. And the response of enslaved people here is telling here. They, they end up saying during the trial with record, um, that this, which is how we know about this case, you know, Willem came, he did these things. Afterward, I fe felt much better. Or as uh, one woman, Cornelia says, I found myself cured. So enslaved people believed in the curative potential of these rituals. Maybe not all of them and maybe not every ritual, but they certainly in general had a sense that um, the risks associated with the Minji Mama dance could be worth it. Now, the violence takes a sort of extreme form when Willem identifies a elderly Congolese woman named Madeline as, in his words, the cause of all the bad business on the estate, bad being a synonym for uh, malevolent spiritual power or uh, maybe an antisocial use of obia. The way that Willem tries to cure her, so that's the identification, the curing process, which happens over a series of two nights, is to tie Madeline up um, at one point before the driver's door, at another point before different trees, and to both himself and along with other enslaved people he orders to do this, beat, flog, and whip Madeline. At one point they rub guinea pepper, which is a, a hot um, chili pepper, in her eyes and in her genitals. So this is a extremely brutal and painful ritual. But it's important to understand that as Willem understood it and many of the other enslaved people who witnessed and participated it understood it, this was not um, torture. Um, this was a very, very violent, painful, but it was a healing ritual designed to purify or to cure Madeline. So think of it more of an as a sort of exorcism than, say, the torture of a suspected witch in early modern Europe. So the, the goal is different, even if the form um, that it takes is very, very violent. But, but these, um, I mean, the use of the pepper and the whip, they're also used uh, by plantation authorities, right? Absolutely. And so that, that's one of the most interesting things about the, this violence is the form it takes on the plantation is that it um, combines African or Afro-Caribbean spiritual beliefs or cosmologies with New World and plantation-centric forms of violence. So 
to my mind, this is a indication that people like Willem were very keenly aware of how they could project power. Um, this becomes all the more clear when um, I looked uh, quite a lot into African rituals designed to purify suspected witches or sorcerers. Um, and these types of violence just did not exist in African rituals to, to the extent that I could find out uh, and talking to Africanists about this. So floggings, um, the use of pepper and eyes and genitals, um, this type of beating, really, these are things that would have been learned on Caribbean plantations. So here um, is what creolization looks like really in a microcosm. You've got uh, African beliefs about spiritual powers, health and sickness. Um, and then you've got new world, for, new world forms of violence and of terror, which are part of the ritual, but they're also part of villains projecting his own power um, in a way not unlike a driver, not unlike a plantation manager or overseer. Now, let's talk uh, a little bit about um, the, the basic material needs of surviving slavery in Burbese in the early 19th century. You use this term um, earlier, the moral economy of survival. What do you mean exactly by that? Sure. So enslaved people claimed a, um, a certain level of basic rights or treatment uh, below which they were not willing to accept. So the moral economy, in this, of course, like others, is just borrowing from E.P. Thompson and other scholars who use this concept to try to understand how subaltern people develop notions of customary, uh, and then in this case, um, formal legal rights. This is a way that enslaved people tried to assert certain notions, not of, not of justice, but of rights under the rubric of slavery. Um, and uh, there are a couple of basic things that they uh, assert, and these have to get worked out over a long period of time, and, and they're never stable is the other important thing. It's not as if they win these certain rights, even when they're actually legally recognized, say, by this uh, 1826 slave code, which is a response to amelioration. Um, they constantly ha are being negotiated because managers and owner overseers are trying to skimp on them, and slave people are violating one another's rights. And there, there are three basic categories. One is the right to what was known as allowances. So this is the right to be provided with food and clothing and a certain level of shelter by those who enslaved them. Um, so this is part of that unspoken contract of slavery, right? If under the rules um, of slavery, I have to work for you without pay, well, there are certain things you have to give me in order to continue working for you and at least at bare minimum stay alive. And that includes a minimum amount of food and clothing. Um, enslaved people also developed a series of rights around the ability to control private property, especially things like livestock and crops, so to raise their own animals, to have certain amounts of private property. So um, despite the logic of slavery, chattel slavery being enslaved people are property and therefore don't have legal rights to, to um, own their own property, well, that's, that's simply not true under the customary rights or the formal legal rights we have in Berbice. Enslaved people developed um, certain customary rights. And then the last one is a right to participate in the colonial economy, to uh, not to, to be paid for working beyond certain levels, to buy and sell goods, to enforce bargains, and to be tre treated much like other free people in certain areas. Um, that, to me, the most interesting thing about these rights is that once we get to amelioration, once we get to the British government 
trying to develop um, a certain formal mechanism for regulating the relationships between enslaved people and their enslavers, there's a recognition even in the law itself that says, you know, whereas enslaved people have customarily had the right to A, B, and C, now we're going to codify that in law. Um, so that's enslaved people themselves struggling to survive. They're not trying to reform slavery. That's not their goal. They're not thinking in those terms. They're trying to establish uh, kind of minimum standards of treatment that enable them to get by, but they end up having a really uh, powerful effect on the law of slavery in the process. And, and how, do they, how do they defend these rights to, uh, to these customs, to personal property? Sure. Part of it is going to legal officials, going to the fiscal, much as they do to protest um, certain forms of, say, violence. Uh, Other times, it's simply taking what they believe is theirs. So there are a number of cases where, say, uh, enslaved people are not given enough food and they refuse to work. Um, There's a case, for example, on a plantation where right after the Christmas holiday, it's an important holiday for um, enslaved people who are given few other times during the year to rest and to celebrate with one another, um, they refused to return to work because they'd not been provided with enough food and clothing. Um, they end up going to the fiscal's office uh, after a confrontation with the manager, and he ends up investigating. And after they convince themselves, again, using that same rhetorical strategy, portraying themselves, hey, we're good, loyal people, we work hard, we expect to get the amount of salt fish and pork and rum that we normally get, that we expect to get, Um, the fiscal ends up investigating and then ordering the manager to give them the property. So uh, there's a kind of ground level negotiation that happens, sometimes individually, sometimes collectively, as in that case. And then sometimes they go directly to legal officials. So, so what you're able to do with 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 these these sources of the the fiscal and the protector of slaves is that it is to unveil these dynamics, these relationships um, on plantations in Berbice in the early 19th century. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the power dynamics we see in Berbice. Um, had their parallels in other slave societies. I I would never want to argue that Berbice was the same as any other place. No two places, of course, are the same. Um, What, but I think the biggest difference really is not what makes Berbice unique. For example, it's, you know, uh, we didn't talk much about the kind of aqueous geography of Berbice as being really a riverine and coastal society or the Dutch laws. Um, I, I think what is unique here is that we have these records which are going to shine a spotlight on similar power dynamics, conflicts between enslaved people, conflicts between enslaved people and their enslavers, enslaved people's efforts to enforce customary rights. I think we see these things because we get kind of a lightning bolt that illuminates the world of slavery here that we don't have in parallel slave societies, say in the 19th century British Caribbean or in Brazil or in the American South. Now, there are big differences between those, of course, in terms of geography, in terms of um, the political culture there. But I think a lot of these basic things that enslaved people are, are struggling to do and, and as part of a larger struggle to survive, we could see if we had similar sources or we may see if we start framing studies of slavery by asking this question, right? How did enslaved people try to survive rather than how did enslaved people try to escape or resist? Well, Randy, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but uh, as a final question, uh, I hope you don't mind me asking, what are you working on now? 
No, don't mind at all. Um, we talked about drivers, and I continue to be very, very interested in them. So I'm starting a new project on the role of drivers throughout plantation societies in the Americas. So, of course, I looked at them here in this book um, in Berbice, you know, drawing comparisons and bringing in some work on drivers in other places. Um, but over the past year or so, I've begun a new book project that looks at drivers in multiple different plantation societies well before the 19th century. So uh, I've started doing some work in archives in Cuba and also with cases from Jamaica. And I'm particularly interested at the current moment in the gendered relationships between drivers who were enslaved men and then enslaved women um, as field laborers, as wives. Um, and so I'm uh, not exactly sure what that project's gonna look like. Uh, one thing I learned in the process of writing a book is that where you think you're starting and how you think it'll be organized changes over time. Um, but I'm continuing to read anything I can get my hands on about drivers. That sounds like a really fascinating and uh, important project. All the best with that. I, Randy, I want to thank you for uh, being on the show today. It's been very interesting, very informative, but also an absolute pleasure. Uh, so thanks again. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. Take care.